1: Today, we're getting a glimpse of high finance as my guest today founded a firm in 2016 called Moonfair with a vision to democratize private investing. And they've been a disruptor in the world of private equity. Born
2: and raised in Germany, his start in business was with the Boston Consulting Group before
1: going on to found and lead his first financial services company, First5AG. He then joined Kohlberg, Kravis, and Roberts, also known as KKR, and worked his way up to managing director and the head of all of Germany. I'm excited to welcome to the show founder, chairman, and CEO of Moonfair, Stefan Pauls. Stefan, thank you for joining me.
3: Hi, Molly, and thanks, really for having me in your podcast. I'm very excited to be here, though I must say that being a German native, I'm not sure whether I am really the best guest for a show or podcast labeled Say It Skillfully, but I will do my best.
1: (laughs) You're doing great, and there's no pressure at all, Stefan. I have to say, I have not yet been to Berlin, and it is very high on my list. My grandfather actually left China for a bit and went to university there, which is why I have the T-S-C-H in my name. So, uh, most of our listeners have not been immersed in finance or private equity. So, today is a really great learning opportunity. Before we go there, I appreciate you taking some time to share your personal journey. You know, growing up, early family, going to school, and what were some of the defining moments and struggles that helped shape who you are and why you do what you do?
3: Yeah, look, more than happy to. I grew in a grew up in a typical you would call it middle-class, maybe upper-middle-class family uh, here based in Germany, born in Hamburg, which is the northern part. And then we moved early to the middle of Germany, and this is really where, where I went to school. Uh, I'm like the sandwich child, so I have two brothers. One is older, and the other one is, is younger, was a little bit, you know, our, our, our little one. We called him Boy. Uh, his name is still Boy. And, you know, my father is, uh, was a lawyer, uh, very much into uh, academics. Uh, so, we took a PhD as well. My mom uh, studied history, but then devoted really her, her time and her life uh, to us, to running the household and to being a good wa- wife and an and even better uh, mother. And um, she was really, you know, like the center of our uh, family uh, be there, uh, be responsive, uh, taking care. Uh, And my father is very classic, I know, for for today's world, very conservative. He was basically, you know, uh, earning the money. uh, A man, um, and he's still alive, uh, and we are still in great contact, highly disciplined from the very beginning, you know, very much into sports. Uh, You know, he was uh, in his uh, age at 40 uh, running and, and winning the German championship over five kilometers, so... A super well-disciplined uh, sports-oriented guy. And this is exactly what he expected in the early days already from, from his sons. So a very classical, you know, um, male-driven uh, approach um, towards uh, education. And you know, it started out at the age of six or so. Uh, he came and I was sitting down with him, and uh, I had to, you know, he, he he wanted me to learn what a PL is in the balance sheet. So I started pretty early with with economics and um, related stuff where we spent a lot of time together, you know, playing cards, the usual stuff you do, uh, very much uh, oriented about content. It was always about content, about history, about politics, uh, endless discussions. Uh, You know, it was not like the family where you played Monopoly or whatever, and cards. It was more about really uh, discussing things, uh, exchanging views uh, on the world, on religion, uh, reading newspaper, reading books together, uh, spending a lot of time on. I would call it uh, more the intellectual side of things. Uh, I can hardly recall that we, you know, at any time watched movie together. Uh, it was uh, you know a small home, uh, but a cozy home, but but quite demanding in terms of uh, what he expected, you know, he told us already at the age of of eight then, you know, that his absolute must bar, so to say, would be that we not only go to university, that was a given in his mind, but would also take our PhDs. Um, So a very, you know, shaping uh, the ground for, for a high aspiration, Uh, And as it turned out later, and I guess that's for many of, you know, people in the audience, uh, an issue either with the female side or male side or whatever side in their parents, you know, if the aspirational uh, or the level or the bar is high, there are basically two things, how you can cope with it. You can, you know, undergo and say, I give up because that's not me and I don't want to do it and you find your way, or you try to keep up with the aspirations and I'm in the latter camp. Look, my my role in the family, uh, Molly, and that is a privilege uh, in a way. If you are a sandwich child, yeah, I found you know um, most probably of uh, expectations went into the direction of my older brother. That's probably why he studied law. I didn't study law. I studied physics and business economics, and then you know I found my niche. And this is something that you know probably is an advice for people that are in the same situation, find a niche which is not yet occupied by someone you admire, of course, and you want to fulfill his or her expectations. Find your niche, uh, which is a little bit outside of the scope. And what I did is I started playing piano at the age of seven. And uh, piano and music, which is more, you know, the fine arts, is not entirely in the sweet spot and in the laser focus of of my dad. So uh, he liked it. uh, He admired it. Um, I became then quite, you know, advanced in it. And when I say playing piano, I'm not talking about, you know, the usual half an hour or whatever many children do. I was playing basically six, seven hours a day post-school So I spent my youth in a pretty isolated world. I liked it. Uh, It was really a passion. uh, And I succeeded there. And then at at the age of 15 or 16, uh, I decided for myself that I wanted to become a professional piano player. Uh, And this is really where where I devoted my time. So no party, uh, you know, a few friends, more from the music scene, uh, I had my niche. Uh, my parents were, uh, I, I would say, proud. Of course, I had to play when they had guests, and you know, when people, uh, you know, saw that that I would uh, approach a quite decent decent level there, <clears throat> and I wanted to turn it into a, a profession. But then again, and that's a you know private uh, talk here, so it's a private uh, experience in a way. My father came and he put on my night table, you know, articles about piano players, uh, you know, that had never made a, a living and, you know, had really to struggle to nurture their families. And, you know, the, the, the unfair thing in the classical professional piano world, you know, if you are not top 10, people don't sh- uh, show up to your concerts. In the past, they wouldn't buy your CD. They wouldn't download your, your piano piece. If you think about uh, you know uh, if you can get uh, you know a music piece from the best player in the world, why would you go to the maybe to the second best to compare and third best? but you're not going down to number hundred. Now think about other professions lawyer, you know KKR, private equity, uh, a doctor. you can be number thousand in your town and you are still you know make a decent living. That's very different. So in retro perspective, I am very grateful for this guidance, and I kept it as a hobby.
1: Well, so let me ask about this and dive into it because as a parent, you know, you see this amazing passion that you don't want to squash and amazing talent, I'm sure. When he came to you, did you feel an openness like he was just letting you know, or did you feel pressure? Wait a second, maybe I'm making the wrong
3: choice. (sighs) Molly, you should uh, meet my father. He's a You can you know, have great discussions, but he is a very uh, uh, typical in a very direct way. What, what you, you know, all would expect from people from from Germany very direct. So it was not a subtle, uh, you know, think it over thing as you would do it probably today. No, it was not directive either. Yeah, but he was really clearly saying, think about it.
1: Yeah. So I played the violin for 11 years and was never at the highest level, but played in a way that was, it was fun. It, I, for me, I remember my senior year playing three or four hours after school each day. And I thought just for young people, it was a great outlet. Uh, high school cannot be sometimes the easiest place so the music was a great way to be in, I think, good relationship with me. So it gave me a creative outlet. It gave me a space to be me. And, you know, I think it, um, To to your point, you kind of define a a niche, you know, that perhaps not everybody else is doing. So there can be some confidence built. sense.
3: I would add, I'm I'm totally with you, Molly. If you think about it and you can't push uh, your children into it unless they, they do it inherently motivated that uh, there I'm convinced. But if you think about whether it's violin or piano or something else, it's, you know, a, it's a matter of discipline. Yeah. So focus, you do something in some cases in, as in my case for hours and hours and hours the second point is it's an incredible brain you know exercise uh, to learn pieces you know for 30 minutes 45 minutes by heart um, and uh, it requires a lot of you know uh, emotional yeah, um, uh, processing and, and openness also when you play uh, in particular, in, in public, because if you are, when you're a great musician, yeah, this is not about technique, it's about the combination of technical skills and emotional depth in the and content in the music that you want to convey over to your audience. And all these aspects are when they are great isolated, but they are also incredibly helpful. Uh, when it comes later, when you do other stuff and in particular in your profession. So for me, without this very intense time that has also, by the way, it, it flips sides and downsides, I probably wouldn't be the human being I am today.
1: Yeah, I can totally see that. I love how you called out the emotional processing um... The, the brain exercise part of it. I am curious, do you have a favorite piano concerto that you played?
3: Oh, uh, there are a few. And uh, to be honest, it, it, it changed. And uh, it, there are some, you know, uh, there's some involvement and development. Uh, it's current, it used to be, it used to be a long time, Maurice Ravel, you know, the French um, expressionist, uh, incredible music for me for many reasons. Um, but I went back then, it, it, and this is really boring, uh, to again to you know, one of the um, probably most important uh, people or human beings in, in in music history, which is Ludwig van Beethoven.
1: Yeah, I, I would have had to guess. I would have had to guess. Uh. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Did sport make its way? Because I think about three boys. I think of uh, sport, but was there time for that, or did you?
3: No, no, it was. Uh, it, look, uh, part of the equation, of course. Uh, so my father is a runner. Uh, I was running as well. Um, I was not not doing it, you know, call it uh, intensely, but an hour a, week, uh, a day or so. So I was a decent runner. I was also in the team. Um, you know, but but never, uh, you know, exceeded uh, any any high level there. But it remained one of my absolute favorite uh, hobbies. And today it's mountain biking and running and everything, you know, that is outdoor sports. Yeah, I love that. I love it.
1: Can you tell us when you go to university in America, I think my sense is that it's a little bit more egalitarian. I understand in parts of Europe, there's not as many who actually go to university as a bit of a cutoff. So do you mind just helping listeners appreciate um, how that works and, you know, and your own, you know, how do you determine where exactly you wanted to go to, to university?
3: No, of course, uh, more than happy to. Look, the big difference between um, the U.S. and Germany and and uh, don't get me wrong, they are fantastic public schools, but it's also very much privately dominated. Yeah, When you think about the Ivy League schools and there are dozens of private schools, uh, Germany, um, you know, as a consequence of its history, has a very, very decent public uh, school and public university uh, system. So, uh, when I, you know, after I uh, took the decision not to pursue my career as a professional piano player, I wanted to study medicine, and then I joined uh, a public university. Uh, but it happened a little bit the same what I experienced, you know, with my. Uh, thinking around the professional music career, um, I didn't want to become a medical doctor. Uh, that was more, you know, hobby, interest, medicine, physics, math-driven, uh, rather than a, 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 you know, a smart professional decision. So I changed horses, and then, you know, I entered into uh, one of the best public schools uh, for business uh, and business economics in Germany in Mannheim. That's a small city not far away from Frankfurt, uh, some people might be more familiar with. Uh, you know, and then I, I, I met my girlfriend there and uh, she was half Mexican, half German. And she had spent uh, quite a while and her father studied at uh, Harvard University. And she said, look, uh, put your toe into uh, you know uh, uh, the, the lake, the water, and why don't you go for the summer school to Harvard? So she helped me applying and I applied. My English was absolutely highly, uh, non-existent. Uh, I yes. was more in a French camp. I could mm-hmm. hardly say, you know, uh, I don't know, how are you? But somehow I managed uh, to get in. These days, by the way, it was far more uh, less difficult than, than today. Uh, but then I had another challenge when, when I uh, started, you know, this, uh, the courses. I, take, I took business economics and money banking and finance. Uh, one course from the business school and one from the economics department. I didn't understand the word. No word. And you know, the system is very different because as you know, in, in US, you know, uh, universities, you're, you're being called out, yeah? There's a dialogue with your professor. In <laughs> Germany, it's a one-way dialogue. The guy talks uh, yeah? and and people are listening. So what I did in order to cope with the situation, you know, I got the textbook. That was really, that that, that was my, my safety harbour. I got the textbook and it was very much uh, leaning towards what uh, the professor was telling us. And then I translated it. And in these days, there was no Google Translate. So I had a dictionary, a paper book dictionary, and I was translating the two textbooks word for word in German. And then I got an A plus. and uh, in, in both uh, midterm exams. And, and then the dean of the university called me in. Um, of the summer program, which was another problem, because I, I was able, you know, to understand what's in the textbook, but not able to uh, have a, you know, conversational uh, discussion with with someone. He called me in, and luckily, this guy was, you know, from from originally from Germany, lived in the U.S., and he started the conversation in German. So that was a, a big, big win. And then they asked me whether I want to stay. Uh, and this is what I did. And then it ended up that I wrote my master thesis uh, with Harvard and, and uh, got a scholarship and and stayed there roughly for one and a half years. I went then back to to Germany and uh, finished my, my university in Mannheim. And then I did also a degree in France.
1: Oh, my gosh, I am blown away, Stefan, at the work ethic. I mean, textbooks are boring to translate it. Word for word. And so that's amazing. And to, you know, just emotionally, if you're going into, you know, a a leader's office and you're thinking, I can't really communicate in this language very well. I I mean, was that super stressful? Were you just like, this is just what it's going to be? I'm really wondering how you handled that pressure.
3: Yeah, look, I would. I was, frankly, I was excited, and and uh, uh, the way it worked, I had a friend in, in these days. It was, it was the brother of my girlfriend uh, back in these days, and he was with University of Chicago. So he came over. He was obviously fluent in English. Uh, by the way, he explained me first the letter from the dean because I was not able to read it, and he gave me a little bit of uh, you know coaching, yeah, in, in uh, conversational English, and I felt at least you know I can survive the first four or five, uh, you know, minutes or so of, <laughs> of that conversation. But then frankly, when I entered, you know, it was a corridor and uh, this dean, the dean had, I think, three or four assistants. So the, the first room was, there was one assistant. I, I coped uh, to say hello. Second one was another one. Third one was the third one. And then after uh, passing through three assistants and, and, and then in these large hallways in Harvard, I got a little nervous, but the pressure came pretty late. And then, as I said, I I was relieved. And Molly, to your point, this is really this was a the moment where where uh, of course you know my extremely close relationship to the to the U.S. started. Yeah, I am extremely grateful uh, because they they supported me. You know, I got my own house from a professor who took a sabbatical for a year because I couldn't pay the housing. Um, my father would not have been able to pay. He would be, have been willing to pay for everything, but not able. So I told them I can't pay for it. And they said, look, we manage. You get a scholarship, you get the housing, you get all the support. Uh, extremely grateful. Picking a German guy out of summer school and then, you know, opening up uh, the opportunity to, to write his thesis there. That was quite, quite amazing. And, uh, 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 you know, staying in the office. I will never forget this.
1: Oh, I love it. I'm proud of America too. Thank goodness that they did that. That's awesome. So, you go back to Germany, and I guess when you're leaving um, such a life changing experience in your mind, were you thinking, you know, I want to work in America at some point? Or were you really thinking, I'm going to call Germany home and stay here?
3: No, it was look, for me always a dream to go for an international career. And I never frankly, considered to work uh, for uh, or with a German-focused uh, company anymore. Yeah, This is later, and we might talk about it. Then I joined BCG, a uh, pretty international firm, um, and then, of course, KKR, which is a U.S.-centric and founded uh, in America, in the U.S., a company uh, followed. So it was very clear that I would go uh, for an um, for an international at least company, but having said that, I started out and ended up you know working out of Germany in, in my early days.
1: So take us through how you you know you have this great uh, launch pad and just the career choices. You know I I don't think BCG is the easiest place to get into either. So talk to talk to us about your decisions and and path.
3: Yeah, look, that, that's, that's something that determined my first, I would say, 24 years or so of my of my life. I told you about the piano that brings a lot of discipline. Then, you know, I did medicine, but I didn't finish. So the pressure was up and, and, and the journey, the journey, uh, jury was out for my final you uh, business administration and physics uh, major. Uh, at the university back there in Germany, so I really, literally, uh, was working a lot at university. Yeah? Not like you know, uh, eighty hours a week, but you know, started at ten. I'm more a late morning guy, and then ended at nine, yeah? and, and five six days a week, and also during the the, the off times. Um, and you know, I ended my my degrees as. You know, the fastest fastest who has ever done an exam or a degree in at, at that university and the second best in my in my peer group so uh, the, the, the door was open to quite a few opportunities and there were two things I was in particular interested in one, one was consulting and the other one was was banking i banking and these were very much on vogue uh, in these days and I decided for consulting because I never saw myself, to be a consultant for my entire life. The reason why I wanted to go to BCG and I interviewed with a couple of others was I wanted really to learn to think uh, analytically about problems, problem solving. You know, I wanted to develop my conceptual skills, as strategic thinking, uh, and this in a you know hardworking, uh, fairly uh, skilled environment. Uh, and this is uh, at the end uh, how I decided uh, to go to to P C G, but I had you know everything but a great start. Uh, you know, uh, they they I didn't catch in the first three months really what they wanted me to do. Um, I was quite self confident. They told me, uh, but you know I figured out, and then I stayed uh, for some six years there. It's an incredible firm, an incredible culture. What was much smaller, of course, than it is today. Uh, but I can still say, you know, um, a a fantastic place to start your career.
1: I'm curious because I can tell you, you had this confidence, they told you, do you recall, and this is along the relationship dimension versus the task dimension of our work, obviously, you've got these skills you're learning. I'm just wondering, any funny stories or ah ahas about people helping you uh, manage perhaps how you show up (laughs) at work or with clients?
3: No, it was look uh, uh, funny. It was less so on the call. It relationship side of things. Yeah? Uh, there was one really uh, you know, uh, funny story uh, where we and and you know that these consultants are being highly paid. Uh, you know per FTE by by the companies. Yeah, it's a uh, quite a quite a fee, so you can expect a lot. And I had my first presentation where I was presenting. Uh, uh, in front of the C level of a larger company that is now a DAX 30 company here in our stock index, and you know, I was basically stating the obvious, but I, I did so with so much self-confidence that no one realized I was basically telling textbook stuff from the university, but not you know, consulting insights that you know you would expect from someone. And then I got uh, a kind feedback and they said it directly look you were stating pretty much uh, the office but the client bought into it so everything is fine but uh, next time you do better and then another one I, you know I was sitting with a more experienced uh, older colleague of mine you know and and you might know this you're you're writing your charts from from left to right I was used to write it you know as you would write a letter so my first presentation was in a, in a very different format, and everyone was laughing.
1: <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you never, I remember in my consulting days, I once was with a partner, and you're supposed to present a bound book. And I just somehow yeah. missed the lesson of like, well, we have this machine, you bind it in a book, why do I have these loose <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, note to self, use the, the binding machine.
3: That's
1: uh, spectacular. So, what prompted the uh, move into high finance?
3: Yeah, look, first, uh, I loved, I said that I loved BCG, but I was there really to learn, uh, you know, this conceptual analytical stuff. And, uh, you know, a cons- being a consultant is great. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I was a bit frustrated that I was not sitting in the driver's seat and really taking the decisions and to implement the stuff that we advised on. So I left BCG with no plan whatsoever and came up with the first with the idea of my first company, which was a, a you know you would call a fintech company today. Uh, but I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. That was in the late 90s. Uh, and I did it. And um, you know, in retrospective perspective, the company is still it's market leading in, in Germany, Austria, Switzerland. So it's not a global company, but it was one of the you know most important steps in my life. Because there I started really to uh, frankly understand what it means building something and working in a a real work environment where you have responsibility, where you have a large team, uh, where you need to communicate broadly, where it's not about the most intellectual thing. It's more about getting things done. Um, and this is, uh, was extremely important for me. With all ups and downs, by the way, we we had a, a horrible time, as many others with nine eleven. I had to lay off more than half of my team. It hurted. It was not. It didn't come natural. It doesn't come natural, by the way, uh, even today to me. It's not what you like. But I learned, you know, how to do it, uh, and and got better into it. And then, you know, equally important, you know, I before I started this company, I. I met uh, you know my my wife and um you know we decided to marry and she moved over to Frankfurt where I had the company and she she joined my company so we were literally working in these days you know being an entrepreneur 80 hours a week every day day and night weekend of course weekends of course talking the entire time of of the company but of uh, about the company that was you know uh, something that Uh, you know, created really an incredible team spirit between the two of us that we are still benefiting today, 20 years later from.
1: So, this is worth uh, unpacking. I did not realize this. Working with family, much less your wife, and, you know, preserving the whole of the relationship, you know, with the personal side is not easy. And, was it ever really at wit's end? That you're like, this is not, this is going to be really challenging. I'm just wondering how you didn't let some of the stresses and hard times uh, tear you apart at a personal level.
3: No, M- Molly, I, No, absolutely, of course. Yeah, because you're living and thinking in in the world of your company and everything that is related to the success or failures or non-success of the company. It hits in a way indirectly, immediately also your relationship because you're both giving your heart, time, and energy in into this. Uh, one mistake I made, and you know maybe you know it would be different today, as I was like the founder and CEO of this company, I was also you know my my wife was a direct report to me. Yeah, she was in legal. Uh, and some financial stuff. And that created, to be honest, some tensions. Yeah? Um, to be, and, and by the way, also from a governance perspective in today's world is a little bit questionable, but uh, we changed this pretty early uh, after a couple of months and she was reporting to a partner of mine and was working closer uh, in, a, in a different department. Uh, and that worked well, but still we, we had the pressure, you know, uh, of the ups and downs that has an impact uh, on your relationship. Um, and you know uh, that was a time for for three years. Uh, I probably you know would say for ten years uh, would not have been the best decision, uh, at least uh, for us to to build our relationship out and 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 you know also build a family.
1: Yeah, no, for three years I can see if you can kind of it's a little bit of a sprint for that period of time. You could hang on to it. So how was it when you had your son and? just um, balancing being a father and doing the, you know, cause you're so dedicated to doing great work.
3: Yeah, look, that was of course, for us a lifetime changing uh, uh, event. You know, we, we really, it was always our, our dream to have a family with, with children. Uh, and we are both, you know, from, from a she's also, she has uh, two sisters, so a family of three, uh, the same with us. And it was not, not you know, outspoken. There were no plans. But we were really, you know, uh, we really wanted to to get children. And um, uh, honest story, it didn't work out the way we 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 thought in the beginning. It's not, you know, and this this is a learning for me, a private learning. It's not that if you decide, oh, I want to have children, yeah, uh, uh, next month you are pregnant. This is very different, (laughs) uh, in particular if you work hard and uh, travel a lot. So it took us a while, and you know, then we lost our first uh, first child. Um, in, the, in the very beginning. and that was hard, uh, emotionally, of course, uh, you know, and, and then when we got uh, my son Benjamin, which was, what was, uh, which was one year later, it was just when I had started at KKR. So uh, often things come together at the same time, new job, uh, we moved to London, so a, a new city, a new life. And then Anya got pregnant and clearly you know his birth as well as the birth of my other three children, uh, my daughters is, uh, they, they clearly belong to the greatest, uh, absolutely life-changing moments I've, I've ever had. It was not easy uh, because I started at KKR. KKR is a great company, family-friendly, but, you know, of course, they expect a lot. And when I started there, it was not the KKR that people might know from today with 2,000 people and 30 offices or so. It was a group of 30, 40 people, very, very small, totally transparent what everyone was doing, Uh, Very entrepreneurial, you know, people that want to develop something um, and, and, uh, of course, you know, high demand in terms of travel, uh, work hours and so on. So uh, it it turned out then one of the misses I spent, of course, time with my uh, son in the beginning and then with the children, but definitely not the time I would have loved to spend.
1: Yeah, well, kudos to your wife for four kids. That's a lot.
3: It is. It is. She's fantastic in it. But she accepted it. It was sort of, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a a deal that she, you know, uh, could live with, but frankly, uh, not at the cost. But for me, it meant, uh, you know, it was job and it was family. And uh, that's it. And not, you know, much time for myself. So I really tried to, to make up for being, you know, not uh, present, uh, you know, as I would have loved to, but that was the compromise. And I often ask her to perspective, is it a miss that you feel? And, and she says, no.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Listen, I think it's a choice. And as long as the parents as partners are teamed up and both agree to how we're going to play the game, you know, you can make it work. And I think that that's a real tribute you know, like you said, there are definitely some trade-offs, right? Would have been nice to be home more, and you had a chance to, you know, create great value business-wise. And um, you know, we've talked about it, you have great relationship with your family, so that's a real. I mean, that's the real joy there, which is amazing. Um, so this, you know, I can only imagine KKR. I am curious as as the company grew because you were there quite some time, Stefan. So just talk about the the growth of you know just a very hard charging group and. Um, how the culture may have shifted and perhaps how you grew as a leader? Love to hear a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, look, it was a, it, it was a boutique when I joined. It was in 2004. And in and, and these days, KKR had offices in New York, which was the headquarter, is the headquarter in Menlo Park. And they just had off, uh, opened up the, the London office. So a small team of very, very bright people uh, really fun to work with, incredibly entrepreneurial. So just develop the market, go out, meet people. Large degrees of freedom, uh, and you know it was really uh, a culture that that intrigued me. Yeah, um, and I can talk more more about it. But it was of course totally performance oriented, but at the same time really a sort of family feeling, and the founders were also referring to the family and uh, i i can tell you a story you know i, I started uh, you know lowest end of the career ladder I, as an associate or something or principal or so um at the age of of 35 and i had no money by the way i started uh, all my money from bcg went into my previous venture so we started literally with 50k debt that i borrowed from a friend of mine. So um, it, I was under pressure. And then I had the first child, as I uh, told you. Um, so I met the first time uh, you know, uh, after the recruiting process, uh, Henry Kravis in New York. Yeah? And as I said, the firm was, was small. And of course, I, I had read at the uh, business school, uh, at the gate, um, he, he is legendary. And I knew about him and what he has built. And he's an incredibly impressive guy, you know, and he came to me uh, looking into my eyes uh, with an incredible presence and said, welcome, Stefan, without you, KKR would not be what it is today. That was his first sentence. So I felt like, you know, in in heaven. Uh, And that describes a little bit how he is running the firm uh, and, and George as well, giving really people a feeling of, individual importance uh, and that is something that you know I have not seen um, uh, anymore in, in any other firm and probably is something that is there because uh, KKR is a founder was a founder-led uh, company uh, who have shaped uh, the culture um, a very unique culture in a very very unique uh, way I tell you another story about KKR because you know it intrigued it, 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 it me and it's, it helped me shaping now the culture at, at Moonfair back there I think it was 2006 or so or seven there was like the similar to COVID there was a SARS flu and everyone wanted to get a medicine that would call that was called tummy flu and no one got it in London everyone tried and the pharmacies were sold out and uh, we were a bit desperate and uh, frankly, you know, uh, fearing the worst. And we had, at that point of time, two children. And then suddenly, you know, uh, without any announcement, there was a package, uh, you know, delivered by by the postal guy uh, at our door. And we found, you know, a package of a medicine for everyone, for the children, the right doses, for the adults, even for our nanny, uh, and a uh, 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 handwritten card signed by Henry Kravis, we um, care for you. No announcement, <laughs> never talked about it, but that's that's the culture at KKI. It's, of course, highly demanding, uh, uh, performance driven like hell, but also caring uh, when it comes to the essence of life. And this is something, by the way, I will not forget. This is why I'm grateful to KKI. And this is something that I took with me also um, and uh, try to give my best the client mood here today.
1: Wow, that is extraordinary. Thank you for sharing that and a shout out to Henry for that level of just putting people first, you know, which I think folks may not, may not be the first thing they think of. And wow, I'm moved. I'm really moved by that. So if you're, ha- you're having such a dream there and you worked your way to the head of all of Germany. So I imagine you have a lot of leeway your master of your universe. so what's what compelled you to make a shift?
3: You mean now in my uh, the shift away from KKR? yeah yeah look the, the firm what intrigued me in the beginning uh, you know and I'm as I said earlier, a very entrepreneurial guy yeah? so I, I, I love the, the freedom I loved the framework uh, in which I could operate which was already international as I said, uh, you know, being entrepreneurial, also shaping the place, developing the team, growing the company, and, and really be part of an industry with an incredible amount of, of talent, learn from them. Uh, and I love KKR yeah, and still love it. The firm, you know, has, has grown em- tremendously. And uh, I've been with the firm for 11 years. Uh, I saw a lot, uh, had a great, you know, made friendships, great mentors. But, you know, at, at the age of, you know, in my early 40s, I said to myself, I want to go back to uh, do something entrepreneurial. I don't want to end my life, my professional life, you know, with a firm, frankly, that I haven't built. Uh, it is Henry and George's firm. They always gave us the, fir- the, the feeling it's, it's our firm. But I wanted to build something, to do something innovative. Uh, and frankly, I needed a new challenge. Um, to some extent, so I left KKI in in 2015, and uh, was really f- thinking about uh, what's next. And this is how I came up with 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 Moonfair.
1: So tell us about Moonfair. I'm I'm just I hope listeners are just you know you you have to like do what you have to do. So I'm really proud of you for knowing what you needed and wanted to create. And and lots of people can think about it, but Stefan, you you know
3: did it. Yeah, look, that's that's very, very, very kind. Uh, but I didn't know that I uh, would, uh, you know, or we would get to where we are when, when I started. It was literally uh, more in the year of, of uh, 2015. And uh, I was sitting in a Starbucks in London uh, and uh, was thinking about uh, what I felt, how unfair it is that, call it ordinary individuals, are not able uh, to invest into private equity, private equity for the audience, um, you know, many people will know, but uh, private equity is uh, from a return perspective and risk return perspective, uh, a close to unbeatable asset class. Uh, Since inception, stating a number, KKR has made 23% return on their investments. So unbelievable. And I had invested alongside KKR with smaller amounts of money that's expected from the firm, and it's a great opportunity. And I wanted to continue to do so. But I figured out there is close to no offering. Yeah, If you want to invest with KKR, you need 10 million US dollar, absolutely not my pocket size. And you know the offering that was out there from, from other banks and other people was just not you know, compelling for me. So I said to myself, there must be more people that feel the same way that should be part of what became, by the way, an unprecedented value creation that's happened in private markets over the past decade. So I wanted to benefit from it. And uh, I felt alone and not strong enough uh, in a way as an individual to get access. And this was really the you know, hour of birth and, at the Starbucks in, in London, where I thought about if you can't do it on your own, you must join forces with others. So you build a community. And if you do so, you do it in the way the first 21st century works, which is digital. So um, I, went, I reached out to friends, uh, asked them, you know, can you put also a little bit, uh, you know, money into um, the pot and, 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 and we make it as a group. Uh, my lawyers then stopped me and said, this is not how it works. You know, it's a regulated market. You can't go around and raise money. Uh, and I decided I do it professionally. And that that, that was really when, when I came up with the idea of Moonfair. And look what all, in retrospect perspective, frankly, I said that I didn't know that at that point of time. But if you think about what all great companies have in common, and this is... And advice, if someone comes to me and says, I want to be an entrepreneur, I, I want to do X, Y, Z, it all starts with that you have to see something, the founder or the entrepreneur, you have to see something that others don't. Uh, I'm not saying I saw that this phenomenon, this private markets go retail or private equity becomes uh, accessible to the broader public, which we are sparing, that this was, would become a global financial phenomenon. But I saw something that there is a need, and all great ideas start um, with a need. You know, probably the famous quote from you know, this philosopher and macroeconomist, uh, Joseph Schumpeter uh, from Austria. Uh, he said, as early as in the beginning of uh, the last century, he said, All economic development builds on the process of creative dis- destruction. And the creative destruction the force behind it that's the entrepreneur uh, and this is exactly what happened with moonfair there was an idea uh, a quite you know groundbreaking idea real to perspectively i didn't know that this would become such a big movement uh, and i was lucky to have it
1: i love it so just tell us uh, for the layman in, in detail how uh, how was building it and how does it work for people? Just so they have a little bit of insight, and we can give them a website to go to to check it out.
3: Look, the challenging—you—you—you you, you, you often talk about challenges, and you know these stories. When when I would write a book, they might sound uh, you know differently and and easy. Building a company is is everything but easy. Uh, in the beginning, you know, despite the fact that I had quite a good. Career track record with BCG and being an entrepreneur and KKR and so on, uh, it's just you. Yeah, It starts with one person. And as I said, I was sitting there alone. And the, the funny thing is, uh, you know, uh, for, for quite some time, I stayed alone because most people said to me, look, this is one, one very serious guy from the banking industry said to me, literally, that is the most stupid business idea I've ever heard, Moonfair. Yeah, to offer... Access or the ability to invest directly, it's starting in your country at 75K, it's still a lot, but it's not 10 million, into a private equity fund like KKR or Blackstone or Carlyle or so. This is never going to work digitally. Who on earth, he said, will invest and will come to your platform? And he said, I don't give you a cent. I would never back on you, and many other people, you know, most ninety-five percent of all my friends said you should go back to KKR. You have four children. You have a responsibility. This is this is who has done it before? Was the first question. Why is it not out there? Why is it not in the U.S., the most advanced and entrepreneurial and innovative country on earth? Uh, Why do you think that you can do it? So not you know not many people were buying into it, but. Uh, one of the big learnings you know and that I uh, had taken with me from my time at KKR, when you have a belief, when you really believe in something, yeah even if there's headwind, uh, you should stick to it. You should listen to arguments, but if you are still convinced, yeah, face that cope with the headwind and go with it. So I started uh, you know with the idea to incubate it, moved on, and then it took me a year or one and a half years to find the first guy who was willing to join. And then another year to build a team Uh, and many, many obstacles uh, on the way, uh, you know, um, that we we were facing, uh, stating a very simple one. You know, we needed at least for our first private equity fund in which then, you know, the investors behind Moonfair that signed up to the platform invested, we needed a minimum of 10 million. But, you know, you need first an offering. Yeah, you need to offer someone a private equity fund and ask them, do you want to invest with 100K or not? And I needed someone who would give me uh, what the industry calls an allocation, so some space in their fund. So I had a very good, and I have still a very good friend. He's co-running EQT, which is a Nordic private equity fund. Uh, he lives also in Munich. So I went to him and I asked him, uh, hey, Marcus, can I get 10 million, please, allocation or space in your EQT fund? And he was looking to me and was saying, for what? And I told him about Moonfair, that I wanted to slice it down, you know, in smaller trenches and then offer it to people that want to invest. And he said, but where are your customers? And I said, look, I don't have any customers. I first need the fund. You have a classical chicken-egg problem. And it ended, you know, the way um, it, uh, it must end, that uh, it was a handshake deal. And he said, okay, Stefan, you get the 10 million. But if you don't get it from your investors, I get it from you. Only I can tell you I don't have 10 million. I have four children. So we had a handshake and a risk. Uh, and then we went out. Uh, and luckily, we found the first uh, 100 people investing.
1: I love it. I love that you believed in yourself when others may not have. After doing the analytics, making you know a sound choice, I am blown away and... Super exciting. Where can people go to learn a little bit more? What's the website?
3: Ah, it, um, it's uh, open, by the way, in the US, as well as in uh, 32 other countries across the globe. We are in Asia. We are, of course, uh, across Europe and Israel. We are in the United Arab Emirates. We're going to open India next week. So it's www.moonfare.com and you are on the page. It takes you a minute or so to sign up and then you can see the opportunities that are live on the platform.
1: That's unbelievable. Okay, we have uh, so much more we could talk about, but I'm going to ask just two uh, closing questions. What does it mean to you, Stefan, to lead?
3: Wow, that's probably you know uh, a very, very, very uh, difficult uh, question. I think it all starts uh, with you know you have to ask yourself why shall people follow you? You are leading always requires people that believe in you. Why do they want to work for you? And I can tell you, you know, it sounds now, you know, it's not, of course, for, for most human beings it's different, but at least in the financial industry today, very, very few people work uh, for, for the money. Uh, it's it's not what, what, what drives them. Of course, they need money for the living, but what it is, what, what people like, it's they, they want to work for something they believe it matters. Whether it matters, you know, for the society, whether it's more for mankind or for themselves, so it's all about inspiration, yeah, inspiring people uh, and give them uh, uh, and, and let them buy into what you believe in, a purpose. Look, we talked about moonfair and money. I can tell you, after you know, twelve years in private equity, and I was forty-seven or so when I found the company. I didn't want, you know, to to work for for eighty hours to make more money. Yeah, money is nice and good, but that was not what what was driving me. I wanted to do something that would uh, would in a way in a way change the world, which which is making something accessible also for fairness reason to people that didn't have access, and it was something that is meant to be to foster prosperity for a broader uh, range of people. It's really democratizing giving access something uh, to, you know, I would love to give it to everyone, but, uh, you know, the the regulatory authorities don't allow it. So this inspiration to change something, uh, to innovate, to do something that no one else, uh, think about it, what we are doing at Moonfair, no one else has done before. So every day is a challenge of innovation. Every day we have to be one step ahead of the curve. Uh, and, and this, uh, you know, uh, energy that comes with changing uh, the world. And in the beginning, it was not clear that Moonfair would become a global company, but now we are. So on a global scale, changing, uh, you know, the, the way the private equity industry is is operating. Um, uh, some people say this is writing financial history and the innovation that comes along. This is really what, what drives my team. Uh, it's, uh, you know, when it comes to um, leadership, it's about, uh, of course, clear course in terms of mission, but also targets. I'm a big believer in empowerment. Uh, I don't uh, believe in micromanagement. Give people freedom, give them probably more freedom that they are already up to because that's the way they grow. And then it's about coaching, it's about forgiving when it comes to mistakes. Uh, but coaching is key. You have to stand next to them. Uh, take yourself back. Uh, many, many CEOs and entrepreneurs they think I come first. Biggest mistake you can make uh, if you want to be uh, a leader. Of course, you know it's not only a shiny, a sunny weather. It's it's you have to be consequent. Uh, you have to be reliable. Uh, I always say, you know, I say what I do and I do what I say, so people can count on me. There is transparency and and uh, you know reliability. Uh, and you know. It's also, you have to take uh, sometimes tough decisions. I talked about it. I had, uh, unfortunately, to let, uh, you know, half of my company and my first company back in the 90s uh, been laid off. Uh, but it's also about, you know, uh, taking bold decisions. So some risk uh, taking. And this is all then about, you know, uh, leading by, by example. And then you will see that the company is, is following you. This is, of course a challenge always to, to have these leadership principles on a, on a broad scale in place when you're growing so fast. Yeah? We, we are growing more than 100% year over year. You know, More than 60% of all our employees are not with the firm since a year. So to, to keep the spirit and these leadership principles alive across the globe in different time zones with more than now 20 different cultures and nationalities in the firm, that's one of the biggest challenges.
1: Extraordinary. I could not be more enthusiastic and inspired. Uh, Stefan, just give us one or two words. What was it like for you to share your journey with us today?
3: Look, it is, I I really, I enjoyed it very much. It is uh, always a a learning thing. Um, And uh, it's it's a a journey of surprises, really. I I never, uh, to be honest, Molly, talk so much about also my my private life and where where things are are coming from. Um, Always, you know, uh, meet great people. And I really enjoyed it uh, um, to be with you. And I I came up with a couple of ideas, you know, I'm going to ask people my friends at one of my next dinner uh, events.
1: Uh, I love it. Shevan, it's such a treat. I cannot thank you enough for joining me, for making time, giving us an inside look into what's shaped you and into the world that you're in. I, uh, I think you're doing an amazing job being part of the solution in the world. If I can be helpful in any little way, I'm here for you. I'm cheering for you. You take good care.
3: Molly, thanks so much. Very much appreciated. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. Bye.
1: Ah, my thought for the week. When you see something others don't, you have opportunity. Do something about it. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Stefan's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
2: Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding. But resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources so homelessness becomes rare more than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built4zero.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please, Challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem.
0: Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com